This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. You're listening to C-Suite Success Radio with your host and executive coach, Sharon Smith. If corporate success is your goal, C-Suite Success Radio offers you informative interviews with experts that will help you shorten your learning curve and accelerate your momentum to higher achievement. C-Suite Success Radio makes it simple and easy for you to tap into the wisdom of other successful business people who know the path you're traveling. If you're ready for success in corporate America, welcome to your new home at C-Suite Success Radio. And now, time for your host and C-Suite Executive Coach, Sharon Smith. Welcome to this week's episode of C-Suite Success Radio. I am your host, Sharon Smith of C-Suite Results. Each week we focus on success, a word we all know and something we strive towards, but not a word that's easy to define. All of our topics and guests are aimed to help you achieve the goals you've set for your organization and for yourself as a leader, but more importantly, to help you accelerate the pace of your success. On today's show, we have Dr. Eli Crow the founder and CEO of Education Advanced Inc., EAI, a fast-growing startup serving K-12 public and charter schools and a national expert in the education market. The software-as-a-service application that EAI provides school districts are designed to increase the efficiency and effectiveness of school district administration. They range from standardized test facilitation to master scheduling and personnel allocation. Prior to starting EAI, Eli spent 15 years in K-12 education, where he served in roles from teacher to school superintendent. This includes many roles at the University of Texas at Tyler, including as the superintendent of schools of the University of Texas at Tyler's Innovation Academy Charter School. Eli was responsible for developing the UT Tyler Ingenuity Center, a Texas STEM center, from an annual budget of approximately 500,000 and three full-time employees to five years later, an annual budget of approximately $11 million. The center then employed 70 full-time staff and hundreds of students and part-time teachers. Eli holds a doctorate in education administration, as well as a master's degree in both education and business administration. He has used his education and his experience to position his company and himself for success. Let's listen to the conversation I had with Eli and learn how he defines success and lessons he has learned to help you gain the edge you're looking for. Eli, thank you for joining us today. Sharon, it's great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to uh, let me be a part. Well, what we're going to do is start off the call by having you tell us about you. I always find that while I can do a, a bio intro, which I've done, I think it's really great for everyone to hear from you. Who is Eli? What are you working on? Anything you want us to know about? I'm an educator, kind of turned entrepreneur. I suppose I had some of those uh, roots from kind of going way back, but uh, spent about 15 years in the education business and did everything from uh, teacher to superintendent before launching a software company that's dedicated to really trying to make the education world uh, maybe grease the wheels a little bit, go a little faster. So we kind of focus on the operation end of things. I find that there's uh, there's not too many people in the space. I think primarily it's because the the business world, entrepreneurs, um, they, whereas they want to help education, don't always know exactly what's going on kind of behind the scenes. I sometimes equate it to uh, Wizard of Oz, little man behind the green curtain. What are those knobs and what are those levers? How do they pull them and what do they do? 
we try to focus on that, try to make the whole standardized testing process uh, go a little faster and smoother, do some work in staffing efficiencies and uh, master schedule building. Pretty complex thing when you think about a uh, high school of 4,000 kids and you know, three or 400 teachers and uh, everybody's got to be somewhere every single period and everybody has to be accounted for. And how do you, how do you build that in a way to make it, uh, make it functional, make it smooth? We help educators do that. It's lots of moving parts. Yeah, it is. It is. But it's a, it's a lot of fun. I, I, you know, I did that kind of work for a while and, and saw just how challenging it was, how many people who uh, really struggle with that and uh, had been playing around with some software stuff on the side. I'm, I'm definitely not a, uh, not a developer, but I, I understand it enough to kind of be dangerous and uh, was fortunate enough to get, get connected with some pretty, pretty sharp people. And we said, hey, you know what? We think we could, we could uh, design some tools that just makes this process easier for people. We kind, of, we kind of think about it this way. Any second, minute, hour that we can give back to educators in terms of uh, the work that they have to do, and we're thinking counselors, assistant principals, folks like that, you know, that's, an, that's a second, a minute, or an hour they can give back to kids. And that, we think, uh, kind of makes a difference when you start adding up uh, all the people who are using the tools. That's awesome. Do you have stories of some of your clients and their successes and what's changed for them in, in using your tools? We have, we have lots, of, lots of testimonials, lots of uh, kind of a little uh, fun fan base out there. Uh, but let me just put it kind of from this perspective. Folks gave us just this past year the uh, kind of a, uh, it's a little bit anecdotal, but they gave us an idea of how much time that our tools were saving them. We kind of aggregated that uh, against the 10,000 or so users that we have, and uh, it turned out to be the equivalent of 20 people's lifetime worth of work. Wow, that is amazing. <laughs> it's a big deal. And that was just over what period of time was that? That, that was just this, just this past year. Wow, that just this is past amazing. Year. So the, the, yeah, the efficiency that we created. And, and honestly, we're really just focused on on Texas right now. We've got a really big presence in Texas, and we're, we're starting to expand outside of the state. We've been doing some work in Louisiana for a couple of years, and we've got a, a project going on in Nevada, another one going on in Florida. But the bulk of that is, is just Texas, so we're really excited about where we think we can, we can take this over the next uh, you know, five years or so and take those deficiencies to folks outside of, of the state of Texas. And what I love about it is the focus on education. And you even mentioned it doesn't sound like a lot of entrepreneurs understand or think about how to help educators. And it's probably because outside of going to school, most entrepreneurs haven't worked in education. How common is it for someone to go through and have an education career and then decide to be an entrepreneur? From my perspective, extremely uncommon, you know, because Everybody has a, a family member probably that's, uh, that's been a teacher or is a teacher or something like that. But to, to really get into the inner workings and the administration, guidance counseling, um, you know, finance, those kinds of, of uh, elements of, of the educational world means you're going to spend, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And at least in Texas, there's a pretty good retirement system here. And so you, you kind of get forced into a situation of going, do I really want to walk away from, you know, what I have, I'm, I'm building up and take a risk on doing something, something brand new, uh, when everything I've known and everything I've done has been, you know, in this uh, sphere of, of education. So I think it's a hard thing for people. It was a hard thing for me. And uh, if it hadn't been for some, the fortune that I had to be around some people that encouraged me and, and made that possible, I don't know that I would have made the jump either. So even though I'm, I, you know, I enjoyed entrepreneurship and I was able to work at a um, higher ed institution where 
we uh, we had a, a center, a STEM center, STEM standing for uh, science, technology, engineering, and math. And we did a lot of outreach. We did a lot of grant writing, a lot of projects that were very entrepreneurial in, in their kind of feel. I think that maybe gave me the boldness to jump out there and, and give it a shot. But again, without those kind of uh, opportunities, I don't think I ever would have done so. I like that. It's really interesting. What for you was the biggest leap of faith you had to take or the scariest moment of making that decision? That's a good question. Um, I, I tend to be a, a little bit of a risk taker. You know, I love roller coasters and um, uh, flying and, and things of this nature. So I always tried to, I always tried to dream big and always tried to have kind of a number of, of irons in the fire and was willing to, to take some risks on maybe some jobs or some opportunities that others might've passed up. I think it was just a matter of kind of which one of these things was I going to pursue and uh, the, the software end of it was something that was uh, kind of brewing. I started to realize the number of people who were using the tool and the difference it was making in their lives and realized that, you know, at the time I was a superintendent of a, a small school district and realized that I was actually impacting more kids' lives through the software than I was working with the small number of kids that were in my, my district. And I think that was probably the, the biggest thing just to say, you know, I have a chance to, to impact a larger group if I make the jump. And it's almost kind of a, a moral obligation, I guess you'd say, to, to do it. That's an interesting way to look at it. I don't think very many people in whatever career they have look to see how can I help the same people in a different way like you did. And you saw that, right. wow, I still want to impact these kids. I still want to be, you know, a big part of this education system, but I can actually impact them in a different way by helping those in the administrative ranks uh, get their time back. Right. Before we dive into having you tell us how you define success, which all my guests do, that's really why we're here is to have that conversation I've been reading recently, and somewhere someone said, the problem is I don't remember who or where, that successful people learn from their failures, from their mistakes. They don't just have the failures or the mistakes and move on. They, they evaluate them. They learn from them. They go over it again and again to fix it and do it better next time. And I thought that was really interesting and thought, wow, not just asking about how do you define success, but asking what particular failures have you learned the most from along the way, whether it was at the STEM center, whether it was somewhere else in your educational career or within the, the business you have now? I'd love to know, what do you think from a failure perspective has made you the most successful? Well, I think the, the perspective that one has that says, whatever it is I'm setting out to do, I know that it's probably, I'm going to say it like this, the wrong thing, right? Whatever it is we're going to do, we're not going to do it the right way. And I have to be in this mode of going, you know, it's okay. Uh, there was a book that uh, came out recently that was uh, titled Be Bad First. And I really like that mentality. Like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg says, move fast and break things. But you've got you've to go, if you think you're going to sit around and wait till you have it all figured out, it's too late. You've got to make a move. And you have to understand that you're, you're going to have some setbacks along the way. I don't even like to call them failures. Right. It's part of the learning process. And I think this is where maybe the education background comes in. Because think about this for a minute. In order to learn something, you have to first be confused. The definition of learning is moving from what we call a state of cognitive dissonance, that's a mental discomfort, to a state of cognitive 
acquiescence. So it's a mental comfort, right? You have to go from confused to, oh, I get it now. If that doesn't happen, then you haven't actually learned anything. And that's an uncomfortable thing for people. That's uncomfortable for kids. It becomes a lot more uncomfortable the, the, uh, the older we get. So you see this in adult learners, that they really struggle with this idea of, I don't know, right? I'm supposed to be the expert. I'm supposed to already have this stuff figured out. Well, that means you've stopped learning. And I think that's the really impactful piece to say, you know, success comes from learning and learning comes from being in a place where you don't know. And so you're going to have to make some mistakes. You're going to have to struggle through it. And the process of getting through that and, and overcoming those, those challenges is where you, where you actually get the success. So it's kind of a, you know, backwards way of, of thinking, um, I think for a lot of people, they just expect, they, they look at people who are successful and they, I think people assume oftentimes that it, it came easy for them. They're really successful people make it look easy. You know, Tiger Woods in his prime made it look easy, but you should know about all the time he spent that his dad drug him out on the golf course when it was pouring down rain and nobody else was playing golf. So that he would be prepared to play tournaments in the rain. He made a lot of poor shots in the rain, yeah, <laughs> learning up, living up to that. So. You made so many great points there. I, I was reading a quote by Michael Jordan, and I can't exactly remember it word for word, but it talked about the 9,000 shots, the the losses, the 20 sometimes the game was on the line, and it was up to him, and he missed, and all these things. Right. But that's not how we think of him or remember him. And we all know Edison talks no. about, you know, if he had quit at the 900th light bulb or even the 1,000th light right. bulb, we wouldn't, or he would not have been the creator of the light bulb. I'm sure we still would have eventually had it. And I have to say that I am so glad you talked about being confused. And I wish someone had said this to me as even a student, a younger student. I was not a great learner in high school. It's just, for whatever reason, I didn't do well. It wasn't where I wanted to be. It wasn't how I was stimulated. It, you, you know, you're the expert in this, but I find that they, most schools try to teach all kids the same way, and we're all very different people. Some mm-hmm. learn audibly, you know, visually, tactilely. I'm not sure if tactile is a word, but you know what I mean, <laughs> <laughs> kinesthetically. Right. And we all learn differently, but obviously it's very hard for a teacher to figure out how each student learns and teach everybody differently. And there's, I'm sure, different schools that have different thoughts and how it's all done. But I had a lot of trouble in school. I have trouble uh, learning through reading. I can do reading comprehension tests just fine, but learning through reading, I learn by doing. Right. And I think that's why I did sure. so well in IT is because I was able to learn by doing and just watching and going, oh, that's how that works. Cool. And then repeating myself. You know, oh, but I, 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 was, yeah. I, was in a, I was in graduate school and graduate education. And there is a, there's a, a student there with me and she's, she was kind of struggling with um, one of the concepts and she just goes, I'm, I'm confused. I don't get it. And I, I kind of made a little bit of a, um, I don't know, a joke, uh, tried to be, tried to be funny, but also tried to make a point at the same time. I just kind of said out loud, wait, learning is about to occur. You know, awesome. like we as educators ought to embrace that yeah. moment of, oh, I'm confused. I don't get something. Oh, this should get, I should be excited about that. And I think, you know, kind of just hear this toward the, the entrepreneurial world, same kind of thing. Oh, there's a challenge. Wonderful. I mean, who wants to just go to work every day and have everything work out? And, you know, all you do is just uh, cash the check. I mean, what's well, the, the, the most fun is the building and the challenges and the overcome and the growth. 
right? So why don't we embrace those things? Yeah, I just wish someone had said to me as a student, it's okay that you're confused (laughs) because that means you're learning. And when you said that today, I was like, oh, I've learned a lot in the last several years as an entrepreneur because I've been a lot of confused. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. I've learned a lot in the last week. (laughs) Right. Just in putting this podcast together, I believe I'm in month two or three now, and I had no idea what I was doing when I started, and I'm just glad I did it. I had someone push me forward, and a couple more people say it doesn't have to be perfect, and some people helped me, and I knew I didn't know how, and I asked a lot of questions, and I know it'll continue to get better. Um, And there's been times where I'm definitely confused. So I'm glad to know I'm learning. I don't know that I will ever be bilingual. That's one area that confuses the heck out of me. Every time I try to learn Spanish, because that's the only one I've ever given any real attempt to. So it's the one I know the most, even though not a lot. I've spent time in in Ecuador and other countries. My dad's a linguist. I do believe it's genetic, Mm -hmm. and I do not get that gene at all. He's a professor, actually. (laughs) But um, I think professors at university levels can be very different from an education perspective than the K-12 model that you're dealing with. And nobody ever said to me, you're confused, you're learning, keep going. I just got confused in the first minute. Yeah, yeah. So thank you for sharing that. I think it's awesome. You were talking about in that whole conversation that success comes from learning, and I think that's amazing. Is that your definition of success, or do you have something else that you'd like to share with us to actually say, I def- I know I've been successful when. This is how I define yeah, success. Yeah, I think, I think I would go one step beyond that, and I would say that uh, success to me is defined by helping other people reach their dreams. I would say it, I would say it in that sense. It's one thing to be able to accomplish something that you set out to accomplish. It's another thing to help someone else accomplish you know, what they want to accomplish and maybe even go one step beyond that and to say to help them learn to do or be able to do something that they didn't even know that they could do themselves. To push them beyond that. That's where I think true success lies. And as a teacher, I can see that being very relevant because you're working with students that you are there to help them reach their dreams and do something beyond. And clearly, you know, it comes from some of that background, but I would say too many people in the business world, in the political world, and and so many realms that we find ourselves in on a day-to-day basis that they're focused so much on themselves that they, they forget that, you know, we're in this together. They forget that they have a role to play in the lives of other people. And uh, I think Zig Ziglar said it really well. He said, you can get anything you want in this world if you're willing to help other people get what they want. Yes. And I think that's a fascinating idea. I feel like there's some people that maybe do that from a, a manipulative standpoint, right? So I'm, I'm going to manipulate you into you know, saying you want this. I'm going to try to get it, give it to you, but use it as kind of a carrot or a bait and switch kind of a thing. It really doesn't work that way. People figure that out, right? They, they know, they can tell that you're, you're you know, being manipulative. But if you're truly genuine, if really you have this sense of, I want to help and I feel successful when, when I help you be successful, that just has a way of coming full circle. It has a way of just paying unbelievable dividends for you. I wish more people could embrace that idea. I do too. I actually believe there's a universal law about this. Uh, um, I'm going to get, I'm not going to remember exactly which law it is. I believe in law of attraction and lots of the different universal laws that aren't the ones we study in school and aren't the scientific ones. And there's definitely one about return. When you put, you know, when you put out something for someone else, you will get it back tenfold, maybe not from that same person. 
that's where a lot of people get it wrong is they think it's tit for tat. They right. think it's, if I help you, you'll help me. And that's not what it is. Right. It's, I will help you because I want to help you. And somewhere down the line, someone else is going to help me because they want to help me. And you're right. And especially in the political climate, we're seeing so much what's in it for me from everybody that we mm-hmm. see on television. And it's really, it's sickening because we know our kids are watching this. We know um, even as adults, we, we start to get skewed in what we believe. And if we, we see the same thing too many times and all I can see and all I hear is these politicians trying to, you know, service themselves and their, their political agenda and not their constituents. They're not looking at how they're going to help. Right. Some of them are, but you know, we're just seeing so much, so much polarization and it's all what's in it for me. And I really like what you're right. talking about here about helping someone else and how, if they could just learn to help others that, that will help them in the long run, that will help their career. And you know what, if their career in, in Senate or Congress comes to an end because people didn't like how they were helping, then there's going to be something else out there for them that I probably even better, but they're so, That's right. they're so hung up That's on, right. I have to have this particular job for whatever reason. I don't know what their definition of success is. <laughs> I haven't had an opportunity right. to interview anyone yet out of Congress, even though I do have a request into a Senator to see how that goes. So, Maybe there will be yeah. that conversation soon. I would like that. But I do I do like what you're bringing up. And that's why we have this conversation and why we bring people on is to remind everyone out there that success isn't just one thing. And it may not even be what everyone else around you thinks it is, but you have to come up with it for yourself. Because growing up, you may have heard other people say success is X, Y, and Z. And you, Eli, decided to define it as this. When do you think you came up with this definition? Because the definition will probably change over time as well. This isn't static. That's a hard thing. I, I think um, we chat around some some of what you know this idea of what success is and where this conversation might go. Um, I, I think that the truth is I've, I've probably gotten in the way of that, of my own definition from time to time. I think, uh, there was probably a lot of people trying to get me to understand this for, for quite some time. And, you know, you kind of piece it together and, and I still, I still sometimes, you know, get distracted by things and, uh, maybe lose sight from time to time. And, and so I don't, I wouldn't say that there was a, a defining moment as much as it is a constant reminder from a number of different, uh, sources about what's important. And I think that's something that I have to be, um, regularly reminded of. And I have to spend some time reflecting on, you know, what is it that we're doing? Why, why am I doing this? Why is this important to me? Uh, we've been we've been bringing a, uh, a sales training team into our truck company to work with uh, our uh, sales professionals, primarily because uh, most of them come from the education world because our tools are pretty technical and they need the technical background. But they you know, there's a lot of uneasiness in transitioning from education to more of a, a sales role, so they need need some help and they need some confidence. FBG is the name of the, the, the group. They they you know really challenged me to say why are you doing this? What is uh, what is your role? What is your goal? For yourself and for your company and for um, your your sales professionals, and it was just a, you know another another time to say you know this is what's important. So I don't think it's something that you can just put your finger on and go you know it happened at this time and I've always been perfect with it from every opportunity since then. It's a constant thing. It's a constant reminder. And you said that you heard it from several people, which helped you remember it or keep remembering it. And I like that you said that because one thing I have found is true in life. If you keep seeing or hearing the same thing over and over again, usually from different people, it's something to start paying attention to. Something that's right under your nose. You hear it once, you're like, okay, whatever. You hear it twice, you're like, oh, maybe there's something to this. By the third time, if you start to hear the same thing from different people, it's time to start 
paying attention to it. And you did that. So that's a great reminder to anyone listening that pay attention to what's happening around you. A lot of, it's hard. We live in such a fast paced society and we have so much coming in, right? So much stimulus. I can't even imagine trying to be a teacher today. Could you imagine being in a classroom with, you know, and you're competing with all the stimulus that these kids are. It's going to be really, really tough and, you know, underappreciated in too many ways, teachers. I'm glad you're out here highlighting them for us today. We are going to switch pace a little bit. We're going to talk about lessons you've learned and what you want to share with the next generation of leaders. And when I talk about the next generation of leader, someone listening might already be in the C-suite and they have another 10, 15, 20 years of leadership and they want to get better because we talk about, and you and I have talked about, it's, it's continuously improving. It's not something that just happens once and you're there, right? So if someone is listening and they're already kind of at the top of their organization, a lot of what you're talking about today, if not everything, makes complete sense. Evaluating your why, thinking about success and helping other people or what it is for them. And then we've got the folks who are younger, whether they're millennials or Gen X or the generation who hasn't been named yet. I'm not sure what we're calling the younger generation today. You might know. (laughs) You might know what we're calling them because I'm pretty sure the millennials are now already at least teenagers into their adult lives. But the folks listening, whether they're up and coming leaders, everyone's a leader. And we know that whether you're leading yourself, your family or an organization, everybody really is a leader. What did you have a particular mentor or someone that really spoke to you that you felt shaped a lot of where you went and, and how you thought about things? Well, I think I'm uh, back to the you know point I made earlier. There's been a number of, of influences, you know, in my life. My, my father was a uh, administrator in the education world and certainly had a lot of impact on me. You know, I'm impacted by a, a lot of Christian principles that you know, express this uh, similar idea, but you could see the same principles in, in Judaism or, you know, in, in Buddhism, uh, the idea of karma, you know, that a lot of people think about, you know, these, these all these, these teachings that are, that are out there, um, certainly influenced by this man by the name of James F. Lincoln. Uh, not too many people, I think, uh, remember Mr. Lincoln, he started a company called Lincoln Electric, wrote a book called Incentive Management, Super uh, influential for me. I think Stephen Covey or Jim Collins, Ken Blanchard, those guys, all teaching these same principles. And one of the things I put it kind of in my own terms is that that leadership, it's not a a plateau that one attains or achieves. It really is a burden that one accepts on behalf of others, a responsibility that one takes on perhaps. What I'm really saying is that I think particularly when you're younger, you see this job, this title, maybe the money that goes with it. You see it as a, a place you want to get, a, a challenge you want to overcome, something of, of that nature. And you get there and you realize it's not exactly what you thought it would be. You kind of, you kind of go back, I think. I, I hope, I think a lot of people go back and they look at the, the journey and the, what they did to get there. Maybe they weren't always happy with everything they did to get to that point. Probably weren't always happy with the idea of enjoying the journey along the way. What I think you find, I think many people, if they're truly honest, find is that when you get to, I'm going to call them for a second, plateaus of leadership, that you realize you had things pretty good before. And now all of a sudden, there's some respect that comes with the job, uh, some pride associated with that. There's some financial rewards that come with it. But there's a burden that comes with it. Some people carry that burden well, and others do not. And I think that's the one thing that is really, really hard to explain to people. I know that if I you know, were to think about my own self and going back and 
doing some jobs that I did before. An assistant principal job would be a good example. Everybody wants to be the principal, but they forget about the, the assistant principal role and how important that, that role is. I would be a completely different assistant principal, I think. And sometimes I kind of feel sorry for, uh, for my, my principal and some of the things I did or didn't do along the way. And, and I think there's a, a lot of that. I was trying to get to a place, got to that place and realized that place wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. And really it was more about this, this definition of success, you know, was it about me? Was it about what I was going to accomplish or who I was going to be? Or was it about who I was serving along the way? And when those things get confused, you generally don't have quite the outcome that you'd like for it to be. So that would be the thing that I would, would want to pass on is to say, you know, don't be in such a hurry to get to that, that position because there's, there are things that you can kind of never give up. Uh, after you've reached that point. And there are definitely things that you would like to, because you take on these burdens that are, that uh, oftentimes belong to other people, but, but they need you to carry them. And that sometimes, you know, is a, is a, a challenging place to be. We've talked about a lot of people who have given you advice over the years, or you had learned from, but was there any one particular piece of advice that really hit home for you that you, once you started to implement and use, you said, wow, this was a game changer? I think uh, I could boil that down to kind of my personal life. Uh, maybe this uh, spills over into the business world. Then I would think about it from a, a purely business perspective as well. You know, personally, I think it's just this idea, and and several people have you know tried to explain this. And that's just you know, there's there's never enough. What they they asked uh, was it Rockefeller? Uh, you know, how much is enough? And he said just a little bit more, <laughs> right? Um, you know, whatever you whatever you get, you're gonna you're gonna consume it in some way. And there's never going to be there's never going to be enough. You're never going to be satisfied. So don't don't seek enjoyment. Don't seek pleasure. Don't seek abundance. Seek fulfillment. Find something that fulfills you. Find something that truly makes you you happy, and uh, and seek after that. You'd be amazed where that where that will take you. On a similar note. I'll refer back to uh, Mr. Lincoln, James F. Lincoln, his book, Instead of Management. He talks about the purpose of a corporation. Mr. Lincoln says, and again, he founded uh, Lincoln Electric, which is you know very large welding company, so welders, welding supplies, you know, all over the world, uh, probably one of the top two in the world. And uh, Mr. Lincoln said the purpose of a corporation is to do two things. Number one, sell the highest quality product at the lowest possible price. Is when you do that, you're going to have really happy, really loyal customers. You're going to make it very difficult for your competition. You're going to have a pretty robust company. Number two, take care of your employees. You do that, people are going to work for you. They're going to work hard. They're going to build a high-quality product. They're going to do it efficiently. They're going to do the things that you need them to do. They're going to back you in difficult situations, etc. He says if you do those two things, that management and ownership they'll be taken care of. You're not going to have to worry about the management and the, and the ownership side. They'll be fine. You'll be fine. And I thought, wow, that's, that's a really powerful statement. And that is so different, I think, than what you see in the corporate world today, right? It's all about maximizing shareholder value at the expense of the customer sometimes, certainly at the expense of the employees. And I just you know, wonder, what, what would it be like if companies took this, uh, this very different approach? And they, they didn't think about it in the way the corporate world seems to think about so much of it today. Instead, they, they think about it in the way that Mr. Lincoln thought about it. You know, he built, he built a company that's been around for, I don't know, Lincoln Electric 100 years old or something like that. You know, what would it be like? That's a fantastic question. And I hope 
we have people listening to this at some point, whether it's right after we air or months or years in the future listening to this and saying, <laughs> yes, that is amazing advice. I want to do that. And I would love to see what the outcome is because I wholeheartedly agree with that advice, especially taking care of your people, your employees. It's right. so easy for people to jump ship for a few more dollars now because there's, they don't feel like their employers have any real loyalty for them. So why should they in return have any loyalty you know, for the employer? And if you're t- well taken right. care of, in, in many ways, that's not even just financially. I talk about, in some of my writings, I talk about helping your employees grow with education, classes. What is it that they want to learn? Even if it doesn't have anything to do with their exact job right now, people, you know, we're ever-expanding beings. We want to grow. How do you help your employees grow? People want that. They want that more than they want to raise. They want to be recognized. They want to be part of something bigger than themselves, but oftentimes they feel like they're just a cog in a wheel and they don't even know what they're a part of. Yeah, there's been so much research that's been done that has just said, you know what, the money is is one thing, and there's a certain threshold. Uh, and that you know may vary for different people, but after that, it really becomes kind of a hygiene factor, right? You need to have a certain hygiene, but more doesn't do you any more good, right? You got to you know brush your teeth uh, three times a day, but brushing them six times a day doesn't get you any more satisfaction than, than maybe three does, right? So same thing with money. There's a certain amount that people feel like they they need to to feel valued or to, to feel comfortable or to meet their needs, but really beyond that, people stay, their loyalty comes from all these other things, you know, growth, well-being, belonging, et cetera. This is great. I love this conversation. The last question I'm going to ask is just sharing your favorite book or subject on leadership or personal development that you've read and that you think everyone should take a look at. Maybe it's the book by James F. Lincoln. Maybe it's something else. What is it for you? Yeah, I definitely love that book. For a number of times now, as I've moved from organization to organization and put together teams of people, I, I've always started to, to always do this, this same thing. I'll go through this process, and generally it's a, an annual uh, thing for us, and we try to bring it up more than just uh, at the you know, beginning of each year. But I want to help people understand about their personality. I, I use Myers-Briggs, personality type indicator, but it's, you can use it as a whole lot of different ways that people say, hey, you know, we tend to certain behaviors. We tend to make decisions based on certain paradigms. We tend to uh, collect information in, in certain ways. And all of those things are good, right? So generally what happens is it's kind of a dichotomy. If you do it this way, you're blind to the other half. If you do it the other way, you know, you get that piece the other person is blind to, but you miss what they get. So there's always this kind of what our, what our strengths are might be another person's weaknesses and vice versa. And getting people to understand that says that, you know, we we are better if we work together. And then the other thing I put with that is this idea of group dynamics, the stages of a group. You put a team together, they go through these stages, right? Uh, People use different terms for it. I like this idea that when you first come together, uh, there's this forming stage, trying to figure out who's who and what's what. Then pretty quickly you get into a storming stage. There's There's conflict that's introduced. And conflict is not a bad thing. We tend to avoid it. We tend to try to smooth over it or something. And, and really what we should recognize is that conflict comes whenever we have this intersection of our different personality types or different decision-making paradigms. What we have to recognize is that the conflict is coming from that. It's not that the other person isn't, doesn't agree with me or doesn't like me or something like that. They just they see things differently. And so if we can start to understand, oh, this is a wonderful opportunity 
this conflict means that we're both probably missing something. And if we can come together, we're going to be better off. And that's the, what they call the norming stage. We're developing these norms of behavior of how we're going to treat each other when we don't necessarily see things the same way. And that if you if you get through that stage, that norming stage, you deal with the right norms, you can have a high-performing group. And every time you introduce a new member to the group, it kind of starts over. It kind of has to back up a little bit. And I think when you put those two pieces together, that you understand conflict is okay. It's a natural part of the process of a group of people coming together. And the reason we have conflict is because we see things differently, we make decisions differently, and that's a good thing, that you can really move through that process so much more quickly, and that process can be so much more enjoyable. It's kind of like the enjoying being confused because you realize you're going to learn something. It's along the same lines. I mean, we enjoy the conflict because we realize that, hey, this the group is getting bettered by the conflict. That's a powerful place to be, and I think that's uh, something that's, that's often missing from a lot of groups. And you need a leader that can take the group through that that process. When you have it, it's kind of a fun group to be part of. I love these conversations because I always learn so much from the people I'm talking to. One of the things I focus on within my practice is creating high-performance teams, working with organizations and their teams, especially within the security environment, so uh, cybersecurity, because that's my background, but really any right. team, and helping them create high-performance teams. So while we did, you and I did not discuss prior to this conversation that that topic would come up, you're saying things, and I'm smiling and nodding along, I'm like, yes, yes, this is stuff that I agree with and I do, and then you say things, I'm like, oh, I never thought about that way before. I need to, I need to start thinking about it that yeah. way. So it's just exciting, the whole idea of conflict. I use an assessment called Core Values Index, CVI, uh -huh. and it great. does a similar sure. thing. You know, it's different than Myers-Briggs in, in many ways. It's very, yeah. it's, it's great, though. I love it. I use it for the reasons I use it for. It's simple to take. It's easy to understand. And it really gets to the core of who people are. And when you use it with a mm -hmm. team, it just opens up the communication so differently and understanding who should be getting what tasks and who should be doing what and who's good at what and who likes what and who doesn't and being able to divide and conquer differently and understand each other and, and understand where the conflict's coming from and have those conversations differently. But I love how you said conflict is not a bad thing. And I think very most, not most people, scratch that for sure. A lot of people are very uncomfortable with conflict because we have yeah. been raised in a society to think of it as a bad thing and a stressful thing. I watch very little reality television for the most part because of all the conflict that they're purposely creating. And it makes me uncomfortable just to watch. But that's also a different kind of conflict, right? That's not a kind of conflict that they're doing on purpose to create something good as a result. They're doing right. it to create right. ratings. Exactly. We're so used to that kind of conflict, we don't think about how can conflict benefit us. And I really appreciate you bringing that up. And there's so many, there's so many good books on that. There's a couple of them on crucial conversations and mm -hmm. crucial confrontations, or Susan Scott wrote one called uh, Fierce Conversation. Yes. But I, I love this as a classic book. It's one of the, the Ken Blanchard One Minute Manager series. A uh, real short, little simple book, uh, just called One Minute Manager Builds High Performing Teams. And it's all about these stages of, of group growth and super simple for anybody to pick up, and, you know, read it and implement it right away. Very powerful. I love it. It's a great recommendation. I've um, definitely heard some of Ken Blanchard's talks and heard him before, but definitely checking out more of his books. I didn't know about the High Performing Teams book. That one is going to be on my definite read list that's the problem. I get all these great book ideas. And I'm a slow reader. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to start well, them all. Too many of them. 
And I want to start them all at the same time, but then I never finish any of them. I really appreciate this time of yours today, Eli. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for joining us. Enjoyed being a part of it, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to share. Most definitely. We'll talk about having you on again and seeing where things are going. Uh, our, your information and more about you will be in the show notes for anyone listening who wants to contact Eli or learn more about what he's working on. Please reach out to him. And again, thank you so much for being on the call. Yeah, thanks a lot. Best wishes. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening today. Tune in for our next episode. And in the meantime, you can get more resources at www.c-suiteresults.com. Make it a successful day. Like what you just heard? Visit c-suiteradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.